Welcome to Gay Mystery Podcast, featuring interviews with renowned LGBTQ authors and up-and-coming talent of mystery, suspense, and thriller novels. I'm your host, Brad Shreve, and Justine Adamick is here with her weekly recommendation. Before my interview with Oliver Bozeman, we're going to hear from Justine and see what she has to say. Hi, Justine. Hi, how are you? I'm, I'm doing... really looking forward to this interview with Oliver. I like his books, especially the D.S. Billings book, also his gay noir book uh, anthology. All of his books are really wonderful, and I like them. And I have recommended the D.S. Billings books on this show about, you know, where we first started. Yeah, I, I don't remember when it was, but I definitely remember that you did. And uh, he was very charming to talk with. Oh, good. I'm looking forward to that. So let me tell you what I have today. Now, listen, everything I recommend on this podcast is a five-star review. I, so I don't consider myself reviewing books. I just consider myself recommending them. But this book, the, it has some caveats. So listen, listen to what I tell you. If you, if you think it's your cup of tea, please go out and buy it. This is called The Mystery of the Garish Garage. Uh, it came up as a new release. Graham Cheater posted it in the Gay Mystery Group. Graham does a lot of postings of all new books, and he maintains a catalog out of Australia. And it's written by Jeffrey Sachs. So let me tell you one of my my first, well, let me tell you why I picked it. Uh, the Mystery of the Garish Garage, sort of the title that you'd get in a, a Nancy Drew book, Mystery of the Hidden Staircase or on, uh, say, on Perry Mason, or Murder, She Wrote. Just kind of that simple title of Mystery Of. I love, I love the title because I'm trying to picture what a garish garage would look like. Yes, and I don't, and I don't think I'm going to tell you what a garish garage looks like because uh, it comes up later in the book, and it's a clue, and you're going to have to just wait and he- read the book. Oh, you're cruel. I am. And knowing how long your to-be-read to pile is, I'm pretty sure that this is going <laughs> to disappear for a while. Um, but that's okay. Perhaps our listeners will get to it sooner. So the the first the first uh, caveat I have is that he seems to break the first rule of writing. He tells and he doesn't show, but he tells it in the most charming, engaging manner. It really is the kind of story where you sit down and somebody's telling you as it transpires. Uh, I don't know if you you read those various like Reddit posts, these long Reddit posts telling some twisty tale, or you know the Twitter things that you know have message one out of four hundred and twenty, and you just get you know next thing you know you're it's a half hour later and you've been sucked into the story, and that's how this goes. I mean, I, I picked it up. And by about oh, two, three pages in, I was hooked. Well, rules are made to be broken. Rules are made to be broken. Well, in the prologue, he says, look, I'm going to tell you a story. I tell you it's real, all real. Um, I retired and I settled down and I was bored. And then I responded to something on Facebook. And this is what transpired. You know, it certainly sounds like it's real. I'm, and, I, and it sounds like the author really is somebody who has retired and is doing this. I don't think the rest of the story ever happened, but you know, you never know. 
the tale starts where he's, you know, retired and bored and he looks on Facebook and somebody is developing this idea of a writer's group where seven people will write the story consecutively and one person will write one, two pages one day and then the second person. And so it's just going to be one day a week and then you have to read the pages up till now and then write your own page and it's supposed to have a 24 hour turnaround on your pages. I know of a group that does that. See, that's why you get the feeling that maybe this really did happen in this book. Okay. <laughs> Cause that's kind of like what every, everybody's like, Oh yeah, that sounds familiar. So then he joins this book and one of the writers starts writing episodes of crimes that happen in the area. These local coffee shop owners are the two Steves, and they've been nailed with money laundering, and their coffee shop is shut down. And in the thing that the guy writes, it's all the same, but the guys are called the two Mikes, and they change the name of the coffee shop. And then a couple of weeks later, he does the same thing. And he seems to have foreknowledge of these crimes. So then our hero sits down and tries to like sort it out. He ends up connecting with another group, uh, another member of the group, even though they're all supposed to be anonymous and not supposed to talk to each other. He finds another member of the group and they get together and they start trying to figure out what this, what, how this guy knows about these crimes. Then they all of a sudden end up completely in a maze they're trying to find out how this guy knows because they want to find who this guy is they're trying to figure out who the other members of the group are and then they come home to one of their apartments and they find a dead body on the floor and then it just takes the book into a whole different direction so you get to about halfway into the book though and he he kind of screws up a little bit he starts talking about himself in the third person And then he switches to somebody else's point of view and and says, so-and-so told us when the main character is elsewhere. And and these are kind of little slips that show not a lot of editing. And they bring you out of the story. So if you're a purist on that kind of stuff, then this is not book for you. Now, I used to be a purist on that kind of stuff until about yesterday morning when I started (laughs) reading this book. And I said, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to keep reading because the story was that good. And the characters were that likable. And the characters were realistic. So it was really really a great book. I'm actually giving it an intriguing recommendation. Another intriguing. We've been getting a few of those. I thought we had a few fun in a row. I, I I thought intriguing. Again, we need to we start need we need to start making a list. Right, because none of our listeners have like sat down and made a list for us. <laughs> yep. And they keep asking, and they keep not coming through. But that's all right. Man, you almost have it's just almost fifty shows you have to go through, and and just give us the list. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> no, no, I can see that. So this is a great book. I really, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I'm, and it's supposed to be the first in a series, and I hope that he writes more. Do you have anything from Requeered Tales this week? I got to say, it's been an exciting week for Requeered Tales. We had a feature article at the Lambda Literary uh, site, lambdaliterary.org. And we've been getting just a great response from that article. And next week we are coming out with 
actually, no, this week. It's today, isn't it? Coming out today? No, no, it's next week. Oh, you know, Brad, I have no idea. But at some point soon, Simple Justice by John Morgan Wilson is going to come out, forward by Christopher Rice. And if it's not on sale, you can pre-order it. If if you are inclined to buy it, I we ask you to pre-order it because you know that really that really gets the book to the top of the charts and gets other people to know it. If you're going to borrow it on Kindle Unlimited, you, you know we'd really like you to borrow it that first day. You don't have to read it that first day, and you don't have you know whenever you read it is when we'll get paid for it. But we want you to borrow in that first day because somehow uh, Amazon's algorithm counts the book when it's borrowed but doesn't pay till it's read all that interest on the first day really helps and i think that people will really enjoy this and it's currently available on pre-order yes it is simple justice uh, by john morgan wilson and it'll come out somewhere around the middle of september yes it may even be out today or it's going to be out in, in the next week it's coming out on a tuesday okay folks just go and hit that pre-order button Okay, that's it for today. All right, well, thank you a lot, Justine. Interact with other crime fiction fans and authors in our game mystery thriller suspense fiction group on Facebook. Links are on our website, GameMysteryPodcast.com. Born to Dutch parents and raised in Colombia and England, Oliver Bozeman is a rootless wanderer with itchy feet. He spent the last few years living and working in the Netherlands, Czech Republic, Sudan, and Bulgaria, but he has every confidence that he will now be able to settle down among the olive groves of Andalusia. He did an MA in creative writing for film and television at the University of Sheffield. He currently lives in Spain, where he makes ends meet by teaching English. My pleasure to have you on, Oliver. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, before we begin, I want to let uh, our listeners know that while your name is spelled what some people would frequently call Olivier, you do go by Oliver. That's right, yes. I I don't want them gritting their teeth through the whole show thinking I'm getting (laughs) the pronunciation wrong. No, quite right. Now, before we get to your book, you've traveled through much of the world, but sounds like you're planting your feet firmly in Spain. Well, I bought a house in Andalusia, and I, you know, I am getting older. Not old by old by any means, but um, I'm trying to. But I, I still get itchy feet, and I still daydream about moving somewhere else, albeit um, temporarily. Okay, so why uh, Spain at this point? Well, Spain is part of the European Union. I have a, an, an EU nationality, so I can live anywhere within the European Union. Uh, Spain is much cheaper than other countries. Um, I speak fluent Spanish because I was born and raised in Colombia. So, you know, the, the, the weather is nice here. And um, uh, yeah, the, the quality of life is better because it's cheaper. So I, I, can, I, can, afford to, um, I can afford to more or less live of my, live of my writing and, uh, you know, um, work as an English teacher a few hours a week and concentrate on writing. I can afford to do that here in Spain. I couldn't do that in England. Uh, I needed a full-time job there, so... Yeah, I see definitely why you would want to stay. That's great. Yes. yes. And I'm currently trying to learn Spanish, so you and I might Are need you? to do some Zoom calls. Because oh, I'm yeah, terrible absolutely. at it. Oh, well, I'd, I'd love to help you. Now, other than Spain, what country do you find the most fascinating and why? 
Well, um, I, I guess Britain really is is, is the country that um, I feel most at home with, uh, most at home in. I, um, I, I moved to Britain when I was 11, so I grew up there, um, so to speak. I mean, I spent my childhood years in Colombia, but the, my, my teenage years, uh, which I guess is when when you the personality develops, I spent that in England. You know, I love the English language and I know a lot about English history, English culture. So that's a country where I feel at home. I, I just also like, um, I mean, I, I mentioned the nice weather in Spain, but actually I, I quite like the rainy weather in England. Um, I like the green fields. Um, so I, I, I do like Britain. Well, Britain in general. I've also lived in Scotland and I've also lived in Ireland. So those two islands, Britain and Ireland, um, are, they're the countries that I... I most attract me. Your uh, list of places you've been goes on and on. Oh yes, yes, yes. There's more than than I mentioned in my on my website. Yes. Where do your itchy traveling feet come from? Did your family travel? Well, yes. I mean, I was I was born in Colombia because that's where my parents were living at the time. And um, prior to going to Colombia, they they lived in you know, Curacao in the in the Caribbean, and they went in Nicaragua, and they lived in Belgium. Um, I, I guess it. It is hereditary. My mother likes moving houses a lot. Um, she, she, li- she likes the idea of moving to, um, you know, redecorating the house. And I, I don't know, it kind of moving, it, it, it gives you a, a new breeze of, uh, uh, a new breeze of life, I guess. Have you, have you lived in, in one place all your life? I have moved all over the United States, but right, I so have not lived, lived out of country now. Yeah, okay. No, but I mean, it's the same, it's the same idea. You, know, you move to a new town, it's a new life. You can start all over again. It, it's that feeling of having a fresh beginning, I guess. That's what appeals to me. Well, I am envious because it sounds wonderful. But it was, it was wonderful, yes. Well, before we get to your most recent novel, A Glimpse of Heaven, mm-hmm. I'd like to talk with you about your D.S. Billings novels. Yes. And I believe there are four novels and a novella. Is that correct? That's right. There are four novels and a novella. And A Glimpse of Heaven is actually the continuation of that series. Um, it's got the same protagonist. It's set in the same uh, um, same world. Um, it's really it's it's a continuation. But I can explain later why it's a why it's a spin-off series. Yeah, I noticed that online. So I'm, I am going to ask you about the spin-off. But right now, tell us about D.S. John Billings and his story. So uh, the D.S. Uh, Billings Victorian Mysteries. They're set in the late Victorian period, and the um, 1880s and 1890s. Uh, John Billings, um, I describe him as a gay Quaker detective with a morphine addiction. It kind of sounds, makes him sound a bit more interesting. <laughs> He's, he is gay, but he is not comfortable with being gay. He's had a religious upbringing, so that's partially it. And also at the time, of course, homosexuality was, uh, was illegal. Uh, he grew up, um, his parents were Quaker missionaries, and he grew up in Madagascar where they had their mission. But he was stranded in England aged 13 when he became orphaned. His, first, his father died in Madagascar, and then his mother died shortly after they arrived in England. So he's been, um, he's had a, a lonely childhood, and he's still a lonely man. He's a man with many demons. He is a lapsed Quaker. Uh, so he's not religious anymore, but he still has that Quaker sensitivity where he feels for people, where he feels great empathy and sympathy for people and wants to help people, and often at his own cost. 
Um, he's a Scotland Yard detective, but he finds his job very stressful. He's, he's a nice person, but you need to get to know him. He's very aloof. Most people think he's arrogant, um, and he's not very popular as a result. He is uh, a loner, but he's also lonely. He, he wants to you know, make contact with people, but at the same time, he pushes people away. He's a very contradictionary character. And I think, um, you know, from what I've read from the reviews of the people who, who, who read my books, the, the reason they love the series is because of him. It's because he is such an interesting and complicated character. And he's slowly throughout the course of the books getting to terms with his demons. Being a Quaker and working in law enforcement, I can definitely see where that would be difficult. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. He's constantly dealing with uh, uh, people who... Um, have had unfortunate lives and fallen in on hard times and uh, reduced to crime. And instead of trying to capture them, he wants to help them. Again, back to A Glimpse of Heaven, and that was published in July. Yes. Uh, John Billings, again, is the protagonist. Yes. But as you mentioned, it's not part of the D.S. Billings series. No, it, it isn't really. Um, I mean, it is. It is really. Uh, if, if you've been reading the Diaz Biddings uh, series, then this is just the latest book. It continues on, but the, the, there is a reason why I, I turned it into a spin-off series. To start with, the last book in the Diaz Biddings Victoria Mysteries, Anarchy. Um, I can't tell you what how it ends because that would be giving it away. But um, the ending of that book, um, at the ending of that book, there is a turn. There's a change in uh, in Billings' life. Uh, I'm kind of using that opportunity to start a new series with a slight change of tone, slight change of cover, uh, where, um, I mean, his life continues. He continues to be a detective. He continues to solve mysteries. It's very hard to talk about it without giving anything away. But there's a change of tone. There is a change of um, setting. A lot of the characters from the, from the previous series continue. But I was hoping, it's a difficult balancing act, but I was hoping that with this new spin-off, I might be able to reach a, a broader public. I think um, uh, people might be put off by having the fifth book in the series because they, they feel like they would need to read all the other books in the series. So it was kind of like a fresh beginning to have book one in the new series and market it differently um, to, to the other books. Um, you know, I've learned a lot about marketing from uh, publishing the other books. So um, I... That, that's partially also the reason why I um, started a spin-off series. Well, I don't want to spoil the end of your book, Anarchy, so I'll, uh, I'm going to skip the part about asking oh, how right. is it different. You explained, okay. you explained that well enough. How's okay, that? that? That's good. Can you share a bit about the story, or would that be... Yeah, yes, well, yes. He, um, so, uh, um, as I mentioned, uh, John Billings is a detective, and in, in A Glimpse of Heaven, he gets uh, caught up in the world of um, mysticism and uh, spirituality and the occult. Uh, this was a big thing in the late Victorian era. People were uh, very much into seances and, and into the occult, and there were um, occult societies um, like the Golden Dawn, Etc., and the many people who, who wrote about it, including um, Alistair Crawley, a famous um, occultist. The book is largely based on Alistair Crawley. So, if you know anything about Alistair Crawley, you will, you will find a lot of it um, in, in A Glimpse of Heaven. Um, yeah, it's about the occult, basically. It's about uh, occult societies who, who look for hidden, hidden meaning in religious texts. 
And that's also where the title A Glimpse of Heaven comes from. So they're studying religious texts like the Bible and the Torah and trying to find hidden messages which gives them a glimpse to heaven or a glimpse of heaven. That sounds very interesting. Oh, yes. Well, it was, I mean, I, I really enjoyed doing the research for it. It is very interesting. All of your Belgian novels take place in the 19th century. Yes. What is it about the Victorian era that interests you? I'm interested in history in general. Uh, I've tried writing books set in present day, and I don't enjoy them as much. Um, I guess even, even when I'm walking down the street, I'm always imagining what the, the place would have looked like 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Uh, I'm, I'm just fascinated by the hist my history. Um, so I stumbled upon, 19th, uh, upon the 19th century by accident, really, when the, the, the novella, which is the, the first book that um, I wrote with, uh, with this character, it's called Death Takes a Lover. I wanted to write a play, and Death Takes a Lover was a play initially. And I was inspired to write that play after reading uh, Wilkie Collins, uh, the, the Woman in White, a famous Victorian novel, kind of dark Gothic Victorian novel. That inspired me to, to write a dark um, Gothic Victorian play called Death Takes a Lover. And after I finished Death Takes a Lover, I just thought it would be a good idea to turn it into a series of uh, detective stories. So that's why I chose that particular um, that particular century. But I don't. It's not that I have a, a more of an affinity with Victorian times than I have, say, with the nineteen thirties or the nineteen twenties or or any other time in history. It's just history in general that appeals to me. Well, one of the nice things about writing historically is that you can put real events in there. Which Absolutely. Is, yes. that's, a little, yes. that's a little bit harder to do when you're writing current day. Uh, are there any special ethics that you have to be concerned about when you're writing historical characters? Well, I don't write historical characters. Um, I, I write characters maybe which are based on uh, historical characters, like, um, as I mentioned, in A Glimpse of Heaven, I, I researched a lot of Alistair Crowley, and I have a character which is based on him. But it's based on him so I can make any changes that I want because it's not him. Um, I've changed, you know, it's, it's not him, but um, it doesn't matter if people who know Alistair Crowley see a lot of Alistair Crowley in, in that character. That, that doesn't matter, but it's not him. So, um, so I, I don't have to make any, I, I can make any changes that I want. I don't write about real historical uh, figures. Well, you may know the answer to this question. Uh, it came to my head, and I'm curious because you may be able to answer this. Uh, you mentioned that during that time period, being gay was illegal. Yes. But it was also during the gay 90s, was, even though it was illegal, was it accepted at all in society? Well, it, it, it sort of depends what class you, you were in. I mean, in, amongst the upper classes, it was relatively accepted. I mean, Os Oscar Wilde was from that same period, and he was largely openly gay. I mean, everybody knew that he was gay, even though he was married. Everybody knew that he had, he had lovers. That, you know, there was a famous uh, court case against him, but that was because Oscar Wilde sued somebody else for calling him um, a sodomite, um, saying that it was slander. And because he sued the person for slandering him, that that, that you know that he uh, that he was a sodomite, um, it, the onus was on the other person to prove that he was right, that he really was a sodomite. And that's how, you know, he, uh, Oscar Wilde dug a hole for himself. If he hadn't done that, he could have continued 
leading um, a, a relatively open uh, gay life, but that's only uh, amongst the upper classes and also amongst the um, artistic people. You know, he was a, a theatre person. I think amongst the middle classes and the lower classes, it, it, it wasn't accepted, no. And, and people were persecuted and put in prison for it. You're not the first of my guests that is pursuing novels now, uh, but you have a master's in film and television and pursued a career in screenwriting. And as I said, that, that's come up quite a few times here. Yes, yes. And then you later changed to theater. Yes, yeah. Uh, tell us that story about the, those changes and how they came, how and why they came about. Well, film is my great love. I mean, I, I love reading and I, and, and, and I read a lot, but film is really the, the thing that I, I love the most. And um, I love writing dialogue. So that's why I initially wanted to write plays and screenplays. I wrote plays and screenplays at the same time. I wanted to, yeah, so I wanted to initially uh, be a, a screenwriter and I studied it and I had an agent for a while. It was just very difficult to get into it, especially in Britain where not that many films are made, at least not produced with, you know, with British money. There's a lot of uh, American films made in Britain. The British film industry doesn't actually produce that many films. It, it, it was very hard to get into. Also, I realized while I was pursuing it that actually a screenwriter doesn't make up a story and then write a screenplay on, uh, you know, about the, st the, the story that he wants. Screenwriters are hired to write other people's stories or to improve other people's scripts or to adapt other people's novels. And what I enjoyed the most was creating my own story, creating my own characters. Also, a lot of the best films are adaptations from novels. So I just thought the kind of, the kind of story that I wanted to write were better suited to novels rather than... Um, rather than, than screenplays. So, well, as it wasn't going very well anyway, I wasn't, I wasn't really getting anywhere as a, in my screenwriting pursuits. And self-publishing had come about. So I thought I'd give it a try, at least that way. Um, if I write a novel and I publish it myself, it'll be available. People can read it. The problem with screenplays is uh, you can't really enjoy reading a screenplay. Reading a screenplay isn't the finished product. The finished product is the film. You know, a lot will change between screenplay and the film that's actually gets that actually gets screened with a novel you publish it it's available to people people buy it they can give you feedback on it it's it's a finished product it's um a much shorter length you know from conception to to publication um you, you know like you can write a novel in six months it takes years to make a film so it's much more satisfying really what you said about film reminds me of a story about Stephen King. I can't remember the name of the movie, Fire, Firestarter. All right, uh, yes. right after that film came out, he was at a political rally, and a friend of mine sat next to him and said, I heard your movie Firestarter is a really good film. And his response was, that isn't my book. Well, they have changed, they changed that so much. Please, yes. don't, please don't go see that movie. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, apparently he hated The Shining as well. Shining, yeah, I heard that. It was such a classic. He hated it. Yes, but, I, uh, I heard that as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, producers, they know what kind of film they want, and, and they want the screenwriter to write the film that the producer wants. The producers are the ones that make the film. The screenwriters are just hired hands. You mentioned that you took your screenplay for Death Takes a Lover and made that into the novella. Well, yeah. no, it was a stage. It was a stage play, and okay. and I produced it. Um, I produced it in in London. I hired a, a I hired a French theatre there, and I got a group of actors together. And it ran for three weeks. 
And then I got the idea of doing a series with this detective. I, mean, I just thought he was a very interesting detective and, and, and it could be a series. So I wrote a full-length book, which was The Ornamental Hermit. And then I, I published The Ornamental Hermit and then I published, then I adapted the, the play into a novella just to have another book. Because you know, if you just have the one book, it's kind of hard to, to sell. And, you know, uh, people who are looking for writers with more books before they commit to a particular writer. So I just wanted to have something extra while, while, um, while I was busy writing my second book. So I adapted my play and, and released it as a novella. What I'm curious is writing for stage and screen is a lot different because it, it I, for lack of a better word, much cleaner, I guess I would say, whereas you have to fill in the blanks on a novel. Yes. Did you find that a difficult transition? Yes, I, th I found it very difficult. And, and um, I had to write it several times because obviously um, a theater is told through dialogue. Everything's in the dialogue. Mm -hmm. And um, my first draft was very, very claustrophobic. It's just people talking all the time and um, saying things which could be shown. So I, I, I had, you know, initially first I just wrote what I had, you know, but mm -hmm. written in prose, written in a different way. Then, um, then I had to really change it, and I, and 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 I struggled with it for a long time to try and get it right because I didn't want to use, I didn't want to lose too much of the dialogue. So it was great dialogue. But I didn't want it to be all dialogue. You know, I added scenes which didn't appear in the play. Um, I cut some scenes which uh, which were ne not necessary. So yes, um, th there was a lot of um, adaptation. Yes. Well, now it's time for awkward questions that authors get. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> and I think you're familiar. I spin the wheel. Yes. And you get a question. Sometimes they're hard to answer. Sometimes they're rude. Or uh, All right. Well, let's see how that goes. Okay. Hold on a second while I spin the wheel. Okay. Yours is kind of blunt. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> are your All books right, well, any good? Are my books any good? Yes, they are. Absolutely. <laughs> what else am I going to say? Why would you say so? Well, um, I, I think they're good. I mean, you know, I write the kind of books that I enjoy and um, they're atmospheric. Um, they are interesting uh, mysteries. You know, they're not, um, there's all different kinds of mysteries. They're not all just murder mysteries. It's not just, a, you know, a person dies. There's a group of suspects and you have to guess who it is. There's people disappearing. There's, you know, there's, there's a variety of mystery, but the, the mystery itself leads you into a, a, a world which is, you know, like a foreign country. It's a, it's a, historical novel so there's a lot of atmosphere of uh, late 19th century britain the character is very compelling um, all of the characters are very compelling i i try to flesh out the characters as much as possible and that's the thing that really interests me it's not just a mystery but it's also it's also a drama really in uh, in that the characters are very multi-dimensional and they all have the demons and uh, you know the main character john billings he isn't squeaky clean either he he you know he's, he's um oh, what was the word uh a character with flaws he's a flawed character and and i find that much more interesting than uh than just a, a good hero i can tell you from the comments i've heard in facebook groups many times uh people would agree that your books are good good actually <laughs> more than more than good is what i generally hear yes now, you've written two books that are not part of the Billings Mysteries. Uh, yes. I'm especially intrigued by uh, Gay Noir, the novel titled Gay Noir. 
Yes. I, I'd like to hear more about that. So Gainois, um, there are three, three different novella length stories separate from each other, but they are all noir stories and they all feature gay protagonists. The idea was to write more of these, um, and I would still love to do that at some point, but I just haven't gotten around to it. But yeah, they are, they are short noir stories uh, with gay protagonists. Um, two of them are set in Britain, one of them is set in California, but with a British character. Uh, and yes, uh, you know, it's uh, you should read it. <laughs> it's uh, you know they're, they're very good stories. They're, they're a bit rough. They're, I mean, you know, they're they're a bit edgy, not cozy mysteries by by any means. Um, but uh, well, you know, it's noir, so it wouldn't be cozy. Well, I will tell you, it is in my Kindle, and I'm going to move it up to towards the top. Oh, great! Because <laughs> I, I knew I was going to jump into it, and then I got distracted. But right. I'll, I'll definitely look into it. You mentioned earlier that you are a film buff. Yes, absolutely. And I know you collect DVDs. Yes. Any idea how many you have in your collection? I don't know. I, I, I have, I've never counted them, but I have loads. I, I have a whole uh, bookcase full of them. And then I, because I've moved so much, I've, I've had to um, throw away a lot of the covers. So I've got a whole lot of DVDs in, in, in like special DVD bags, you know, like these CD carrier cases. So I've got a whole stack of those and I've got a whole bookshelf full of DVDs. I, I don't really know how many I have, but it's several hundred. And, and I, watch, <laughs> I watch a DVD every night and I uh, watch many of them over and over again. I, they're not just things that I only watch once. Yeah, a good movie I could watch over and over again many, yes. many times. Yes. Well, have you got many DVDs as well? Yes. Uh, and I'm changing that to buying online, though I'm a little more comfortable with their DVDs. I, do, I don't have nearly as many as you do. I, I can't give you the number, but okay. it sounds like you have a whole lot more than I do. Yes. Yes. And I'm worried that they might stop making them because I don't want to buy online. I, you know, I like to have the cover. I like to have the, I like to have them on my, on my display, uh, on my display case. Um, so I want to keep on buying DVDs. I hope they don't stop making them. Well, that sounds very much like uh, people that prefer a, a hardcover book compared to yeah. those that like a Kindle. Well, I mean, I do too, really. I do too. I mean, I've got a Kindle and it's just very useful to have a Kindle. You can buy a book and you have it there immediately and you can have, store a lot of books in them and you can carry it everywhere you want. But there is something romantic about flicking pages and you know, the smell of a new book and having, having something to show people. This is the book that I'm reading and then you show them the cover and people get intrigued. It's just nicer than... Uh, but yes, I mean, Kindles are very useful. I, I, read, I'm, I mostly read e-books also because I'm living in Spain and it's harder to buy books in English uh, where I live. But yes, I, I understand why people prefer um, paperbacks to e-books. Appreciate that you said that you have had to cut back on some of the DVDs because of your, your moving and your travels. As I said, I've always been here in the States, but I've moved quite a bit throughout the United States. Yes. And I've, I've had to give up a lot. I don't get real connected to things for that reason. Mm -hmm. I've also lost a lot of things in my moves, which is, that's always yes. different. Well, no, I, I, I'm, I'm absolutely with you. I, I don't actually have many possessions. This is the first house that, I, you know, I, I bought this house where I live in. It's the first house that I own. Previously, I've always rented furnished places. So I didn't even, when I moved here, I didn't even have any furniture. Well, the house came with some furniture in it, and then bit by bit, so I've been buying furniture. But this is the first time I'm actually, you know, I actually own things other than DVDs. 
my DVDs were my only possession. Well, that makes it easy to move. That's right. Yes. <laughs> I'm curious as far as historical. Do you, do you enjoy historical movies as much as you do in novels? Yes, I do. Well, or period movies, you know, and not necessarily historical. There's a difference between historical and period. Uh, yeah, you're films correct. set in a different in a different era. I enjoy historical movies. I enjoy if they are accurate, um, but mostly they're not. I think I've shared this on the air before that I was reading a novel, it was a novel or a novella written during the Victorian era, and yes. the young lady says that she was on her way to a cocktail party. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and I, I don't usually stop a book, but I did stop at that point because I. Yes. Yeah, like, <laughs> uh, they they missed something in their research there. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's 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 easy to make a mistake, but uh, you, you have to have a bit of an affinity with with uh, the period that you're writing in. So it's it's easy to assume things that exist now existed then. That is true. That is true. Yeah. Now, for our listeners, uh, what are some great mystery movies that you believe are required watching? Oh, golly. Um, well, um, I like a lot of the old, you know, the old, you know, we were talking about, um, about you know, gay noir. I like a, a lot of the old noir films, like The Maltese Falcon, for instance. Um, uh, Maltese Falcon with Humphrey Bogart, that's a great one. That's a tough. It's a tough one. If people ask me to recommend films, I, I'm always lost for words because uh, there are so many that I like. Um, so I, I would say I would say that uh, a Maltese, Maltese Falcon. There's a film called The Grifters, another noir, a great noir uh, film uh, directed by Stephen Frears. I think it was released in the 90s with Angelica Houston and John Cusack. Do you know it, The Grifters? I believe I have seen it, but it was a long time ago. Yes, it was a long time ago since I saw it, but it, it really impressed me. I thought that was a great mystery as well. Gosh, uh, I, I don't know. I think when it comes to mysteries, the best mysteries that I know, the ones that, that really um, uh, impressed me were books rather than films. Mm -hmm. So things like uh, Wilkie Collins, The Woman in White, or you know, Margaret Atwood books, they have some mystery in them as well. They're very good, like uh, The Blind Assassin. That was an excellent book. I, I don't know. Uh, oh, that's fine. You, you did fine there. Uh, what would you What would you recommend? Well, I would definitely recommend the Maltese Falcon. Okay, uh, I think that's good. a wonderful film. I I'm having a hard time thinking of others. I did enjoy the exactly. recent, <laughs> I did enjoy the recent one, Knives Out. Yeah, I haven't seen it. It, it looks like a spoof. Uh, not really. Uh, it's uh, not. It, but it's. It, there is humor in it, and okay. uh, de definitely give it a try. I think you'll well, enjoy it. Well, I've heard it. a lot of good stuff out of it. Yeah, okay. And it gives, has Chris Evans in it, which I always enjoy looking at him. Oh, yes. So the, yes. <laughs> there is that. Now, back to your writing. Uh, John Billings' mystery is number one in a series. Yes. The new one. So you obviously expect to do more of those. But, yes, I'm, I'm, I am. I'm in, but, I'm in the process of writing another one. Do you have any other series in mind for the future? No, no, not not for the moment. So I'm concentrating on this one. As I mentioned before, I am. I would like to write some more noir novellas, but they would be standalones, and 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 I would probably publish them like I did Gay Noir, you know, three three novellas in one book, like an anthology. Um, but I'm not contemplating any other series. No, nothing, nothing in the 
plans as of no. right now? No, 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 not right now. So I presume writing historical novels, there's a, probably a large amount of research involved. Of course, yes. What is one of the most surprising things you found in your research? Um, well, the, this book that I'm writing now, which is the second one in the John Billings Mysteries, it's set in Egypt, um, so the late Victorian period in England. There was this thing called Egyptomania, where people were just mad about Egypt and ancient Egypt and recent archaeological uh, discoveries that were made. And you know, people travelled to Egypt a lot, and uh, well, the the you know the, the the rich ones they would travel to Egypt and buy souvenirs. And um, I was amazed just what kind of souvenirs they could buy because a lot of the great treasures from from ancient Egypt, you know, that that people um, found in in the tombs, they were just on sale on streets. Like I came across a photograph of a of a boy on the street selling mummies, selling mummies on the streets to um, European tourists. Um, so I was uh, surprised about how little control there was in uh, in archaeological discoveries in Egypt at that time. Um, it, it was a bit of a scandal at that time because somebody did then regulate it, and they decided to regulate it then because a lot of treasures were being lost, were being sold to to tourists. So yeah, you know, extravagant tourists who wanted to have something like a, a, a lovely sarcophagus to display uh, to their to their dinner guests in the in the dining room. Um, but yeah, so I, I was amazed that they even sold the mummies on the streets. Well, yeah, I'm thinking, picturing a boy on the street selling mummies, and that's hysterical to me. But exactly. I imagine a lot of uh, great information has been lost because of that. Well, yes, exactly. But then there were a lot of mummies. I mean, there was a lot of treasure in Egypt. Uh, you know, the Egypts did mummify a lot of things. Not all mummies were kings or uh, princes or important people. Just ordinary people got mummified as well. So I guess the ones that the, the, the boy was selling on the street were probably not important mummies. But yes, uh, a lot of information has gotten lost by that. that. That's absolutely true. Well, if I'm buying a mummy, I better get somebody that's in royalty. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I don't want a discount mummy. No, <laughs> no, no, exactly. Uh, would you say you have a unique or quirky writing habit? Oh, I don't really know what uh, kind of oh, habit or style. Uh, well, you, either one. You can go with either style. <laughs> yeah, um, habit, my habit. I don't have a writing habit. I have to force myself to write. I'm a lazy writer. I have to force myself to, uh, to write at least 500 words every day. And even that I don't always manage. Um, Style-wise, I, I, I like to um, I, I like to write. I don't spend uh, a lot of pages um, describing things. Uh, um, a lot of the atmosphere just comes from dialogue, the way people speak. Um, dialogue is what I enjoy writing most. And, and, if I, and if I'm working on a dialogue scene, I could write like two thousand words in one go. But when I'm writing a descriptive scene, that just takes its toll. You know, I could spend uh, three hours just writing 500 words if, if I have to write a descriptive scene. So, yeah, I guess that, that, that's, my, uh, that, that's my style. My, my, my quirk is that I like to put all the information uh, you know, re regarding atmosphere and descriptions in the dialogue rather than in, in the narrative. Well, writing dialogue is uh, for enjoying it. That's actually good for screenwriting. Well, exactly. That's why initially I wanted to be a screenwriter. Yes. But you and I are very similar. I absolutely love writing dialogue. I could, oh, yeah, I could, yes. I could just spew that out the whole day, but then I have to force myself to write the descriptions. It's, you know, yeah. That, exactly. Dialogue is a lot of fun. It is. It is. Yes. 
No, and I read I read your book. I read the first uh, the first book of your series, and you had some uh, some really great uh, great characters in there. And uh, I, you know, I really enjoyed the dialogue that, uh, that you wrote in those uh, in those books. So you well, can see, you can tell, you can tell that you 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 really enjoy the character that you're writing. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I have to all all of them. I have to enjoy them, either, whether I love them or hate them. Well, exactly. Yes. Yes. Well, <laughs> sometimes the villains are, you know, the the horrible villains. They they they're just fun to write. Yes. It's certainly fun to write in uh, Games of Heaven. There is a very horrible villain in that book, and I really enjoyed writing him. Oliver, our time is up, and I got to say, I really enjoyed our conversation. So did I, yes. It was great fun. And uh, let's plug your most recent novel again. Yeah, it's called um, A Glimpse of Heaven. It's the first of the uh, John Billings mystery, and um, it's about a detective uh, getting into the world of the occult in the late Victorian England. And where again is the best place to find the book? Uh, well, the best place is to go to my website, oliverbossman.com, and click on the link, and that'll, and, and that'll take you to all the shops that it's available on. So uh, I've, I've gone wide with this book. It's available on, on all of the major shops, uh, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, um, Apple, Amazon, uh, Smashwords, everywhere. Everywhere where you can buy books, it, it's there. But if you go to my website and you click on the link, it'll take you to a link, and you can choose uh, the store of your uh, of your choice. I'll make sure I put the website in the show notes. So it'll be easy for people to find you. Yes. Excellent. Well, thank you again for your time. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Hit the subscribe button wherever you hear our show. So you don't miss a single episode. Tell a friend too. Thank you for listening.